Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of The Lotus and the Fire, my new podcast. I'm Joseph Bobro. Our guest today, Tenzin Tetong, is the director of the Tibetan language section of Radio Free Asia. He was the representative of the Dalai Lama in New York City, the prime minister of the Central Tibetan Administration, and the special representative of His Holiness in Washington, D.C. He founded the International Campaign for Tibet and in 1980 led the second delegation of Tibetans to Tibet and China. Tenzin Tatong was also advisor to the film Seven Years in Tibet, a story, he said, not just about human rights, the environment, cultural preservation, religious traditions and practices, or language, but all of these and many others. It's a story about a country facing extinction at the hands of the Chinese at a juncture in its history when the traditional Tibetan way of life, what Tenzin calls our spiritual way of life, clashes with the modern world. Tenzin Tetong believes the story is not complete yet. It raises issues that confront all of us, how and why we should preserve different peoples, different languages, different cultures, and different traditions in the world today. So Tibet, he says, becomes a broader symbolic story for all of us. Tenzin Tatong was born in Tibet in 1948. He began life in exile in India at age six when he accompanied his family to Musori, where the Dalai Lama, months after his arrival from Tibet, had started a school. Tenzin's father was a teacher and, due to a shortage of anyone with knowledge of languages other than Tibetan, Tenzin and his older brother helped out at the school. In 1960, when the first children from the road camps and border areas came to Musuri, Tenzin taught English to his peers and to other children. The following year, he went to Shimla, where his father was appointed principal of the second Tibetan refugee school. In 1962, his family moved back to Darjeeling, where he completed high school. And soon after his graduation, Tenzin started to work in Dharamsala as an interpreter, secretary, and translator. From 1967 onwards, he became involved in many Tibetan activities, especially among the young people, and he helped organize the Tibetan Youth Conference. With his brother and friend, Tenzin also started Sheja, the first educational publication in exile and the first Tibetan non-governmental initiative, read quite widely. Tenzin also edited and published the Tibetan Review. Both publications became part of the information office of the Tibetan government in exile. Tenzin was a distinguished fellow of the Tibetan Studies Initiative and chair of the Tibetan Studies Committee and worked to establish research and teaching positions at Stanford University. 
He helped found and lead the Dalai Lama Foundation, which created venues to study and apply themes in the Dalai Lama's ethics for a new millennium. It's my deep pleasure to uh, welcome to this podcast Tenzin Tetong. Tenzin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a few years since we met and did some work together uh, at the Dalai Lama Foundation around um, His Holiness' book, Ethics for a New Millennium. That's correct. And I remember with pleasure the collaboration on that really important topic. Tell us a little bit about your life since then, if you'd like. Well, since then, uh, I've been on the move, uh, and I realized uh, that I'm a bit of a nomad. So after having lived in California for a few years, I decided to move to the East Coast. And there was an opportunity to work at Radio Free Asia, which is a um, entity funded by the U.S. government, but supposed to be an independent organization. So there was an opportunity to be the head of the Tibetan language broadcast. Radio Free Asia has about seven or eight languages, mostly in Asia, that focuses around China. So it's Chinese, Mandarin service, Cantonese service, Vietnamese, <clears throat> Korean, uh, Cambodian, Lao, Tibetan, Burmese. So uh, it's an entity that's been around over 20 years, mm. established by Congress. And the idea is to uh, give these societies access to free information uh, or uncensored information. And the Tibetan language service has been around uh, over 20 years. Um, so there was an opportunity to be, be part of that. And yes. uh, uh, part of my nomadic streak uh, said time to move. And it was also, also an opportunity to be involved in a Tibetan effort uh, with some direct bearing on the uh, people of Tibet, so to speak. So I took that opportunity and moved to Washington, D.C. And uh, I worked at Radio Free Asia for over four years. Mm -hmm. So I'm basically the uh, head of the Tibetan language group. And uh, it does radio broadcasts, uh, a little bit of TV programming, and a lot of materials on the internet and on social media. You know, Tenzin, uh, sometimes we take uh, information for granted, but that's right. Tibet, uh, as you've written, is one of the most media-hostile uh, environments, given that's the right. Chinese occupation, in the world. That's correct. So why don't you tell us the importance of a free flow of information and the risks of a serious dearth of information coming in and going out. 
That's right. Well, the free flow of information is extremely important for the people of Tibet because inside Tibet, what little public information that people get uh, is official Chinese propaganda and official Chinese information uh, they want the Tibetan people to hear. And it is usually uh, ideological based to talk about the uh, superiority of the Chinese communist ideology, even though the real communist ideology no longer exists in China. Mm. And it artificially promotes uh, uh, the rights of the Tibetan people, even though obviously within the larger Chinese setup, the Tibetans enjoy less of the rights than the average Chinese. And uh, the Tibetans are denied any information of the outside world. So first of all, they have no idea what is really happening in just outside China, in India or rest of Asia, let alone the United States and Europe. And uh, what little information they get is distorted or usually negative. So Tibetan people are left completely in the dark as far as how the world is changing. And then what uh, upsets or hurts the Tibetans the most is that they try to censor any information about His Holiness the Dalai Lama, mm -hmm. uh, what he says and what he does, and uh, very little information about the well-being of the Tibetans outside Tibet are available to people in Tibet. So these broadcasts, Radio Free Asia and other entities, they are like a, you know, um, um, a lifeline. Lifeline, yes, that's what I was thinking. A lifeline for the Tibetans to, to human life, to what's happening to the rest of humanity, and uh, people, at the risk of uh, serious consequences, find ways to listen to these broadcasts. And from reading some things you wrote, you have people and sources uh, that enable you to get information out about what's right. going on so the world can know. That's correct. So we are able to get information from different sources uh, among the people who work at Radio Free Asia uh, in the Tibetan section, almost everybody, almost everybody is Tibetan, and about a third of them have come from India and Nepal, so they have connections that way. And maybe a third or more are people who've managed to come out almost directly from Tibet in the last 10 to 15 years. So they have family and connections inside Tibet. So we are able to get a lot of uh, accurate and valuable information from inside Tibet. Of course, we have to be very careful not to reveal names and specific uh, places, but we are able to um, use a lot of that information uh, in our broadcasts. Um, information 
And yes, in addition to all that, all of that, because of new technology, uh, we also have um, people who, who we know we don't know of sending in pictures and video clips on uh, uh, on their phones. You know, so mm-hmm. now even in some remote parts of Tibet, somebody has a smartphone and is able to uh, do that. When the uh, internet is open, which it isn't all the time, is that correct? That's right. Uh, so the, uh, officially, the Chinese government has been trying to prevent all of this from getting into Tibet. So radio programs are jammed in the larger towns and cities, mm-hmm. uh, constantly jammed. But uh, they can't jam the whole plateau. So often outside the bigger towns and cities, people can hear it. I see. Uh, <clears throat> then in many parts, they try to block the satellite transmission of both radio programs and TV programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the satellite dish settings are manipulated and blocked. But then people find ways to get around that also. Uh, there's always, you know, where any new lock, there's a new key. So people are finding ways to change all the time. Oh, it's an ongoing, ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you have been involved with language and communication, and now you know information. That's uh, right. Trying to give a voice and translate voices and bring voices in. It seems like this in addition to maybe being a little nomadic, that this is part of part of your character. That's true. Um, language uh, at this point in Tibetan history is uh, playing a very important role and a very uh, uh, sort of changing role at this time. Mm. See, Tibet uh, is a vast area, right, as you know area-wise is almost like a million square miles and uh, people in the western parts of Tibet towards Ladakh would have nothing to do with people in the Amzo area like 2,000 miles away mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. And so the Tibetan language uh, is spoken in various dialects and you know differences in many parts of Tibet. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes a very shall we say, a strong dialect in a, a certain nomadic area might be very difficult to understand for people even in their own neighborhood. But then that dialect might be understood by somebody a thousand miles away because that dialect has not changed for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. But uh, because of communication and movement of people now in the modern times, uh, Tibetans are beginning to speak in what is termed a co- the common Tibetan. You know, oh. uh, maybe 50 years ago or earlier, people used to say, we need to speak the central Tibetan dialect, the Lhasa dialect, you know, something like the BBC English. And now the term they use is common Tibetan. And so, uh, all across Tibet, people are trying to pay attention to uh, speaking in a, a, a dialect or a tone that is more commonly understood. Mm. 
So we are, we, we are in the process of losing some very interesting and unique accents. Mm. But at the same time, a new Tibetan is being formed. So a young Tibetan educated in a refugee school in Nepal or India with a new Tibetan that has influences of Indian and European languages is trying to communicate with Tibetans who are brought up entirely in Tibet, maybe with some Chinese influences also. So mm -hmm. words, terminology, and accents are all now in a, in a flow right now. You know, the other thing that I connected with you so quickly about <laughs> when we first met in your office, there were a few things, but, but this other one was the element of bringing people together. And that's yes. what you seem to be saying is through, you may lose some things in a common language, but what you gain is you bring people together and you allow them to, to be together, to hear each other's experience and stories, and that there's power in that kind of connection. That's very true. Uh, Tibetans are finding a, a new or you could say a new sense of identity, a new sense of uh, their own role in that part of the world, or even on the on the global stage. Uh, for example, in a very strange way, there are parts of northeastern Tibet and eastern parts of Tibet, which uh, for the last few hundred years were either under very strong influence from neighboring Chinese provinces like Sichuan, or in the further north, like uh, the, the Amdo area, Qinghai area, with very strong influence from the Manchu rule in Kansu and nearby uh, Chinese provinces. And uh, politically, huge sections of eastern Tibet were sort of divorced from the rest of central Tibet. And uh, uh, the only ties that continued in a healthy manner were the religious ties, the monasteries and the monks and lamas. And uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, many Tibetans or scholars of Tibet would say, you know, this is a reality. Uh, this idea of one large Tibetan family is, is just something that happened in the past. The reality now is that there are parts of Tibet which will never find a common voice or a common identity. Uh, but in the last 40, 50 years, to a large extent because of uh, Chinese mismanagement, so to speak, if I might put it mildly, mismanagement, wherever there are Tibetans, they've, had a, they've uh, found a new uh, sense of their identity that it's being uh, persecuted or it's under stress and so a very basic sort of human instinct to fight for your own identity. I'm reminded of, often of uh, is it uh, Jesse Jackson when he was running for the president presidency 20-30 mm -hmm. years ago he kept saying I am somebody you know, that's, I don't know if you recall, I do. Some, somehow that comes to my mind. And no matter how remote or how uneducated 
a Tibetan is from some of these remote areas, he's basically saying, look, I am somebody, I may not be what the Chinese define me or the Chinese expect of me. I'm a Tibetan and I am somebody. So there's an unusually strong new sense of Tibetan identity, if I might put it that way. I am so de delighted to hear this because even just a few years ago when we talked and I yeah. talked to other Tibetans, it seemed less hopeful. Well, you know, this. I think uh, the human spirit definitely is something more than what we <laughs> know of, right? There's a uh, undying quality that will just not give up, even though the reality looks uh, terrible. Uh, there's something inside human beings that just says we just got to keep on going. And so uh, right now, in a strange way, yes, on a physical level, Tibet is occupied by the Chinese, fully occupied, under full control, mm. police, military, economy, you know, everything with uh, CC, you know, TV cameras. They are physically in control, 100%. But in the minds of the Tibetans, in the spiritual and cultural sense, they have no control. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like right now where where the whole world is going through the coronavirus epidemic, right? Right. What it's telling us that no matter how powerful a leader you are, you can't do anything. No matter how powerful an army you have, it's useless. No matter how how big your economy is, it's not going to change the reality. And high tech also don't, can't do anything. <laughs> we as people have to cooperate and solve the problem. So in a way, in Tibet, I think it, there's the element of that. The Chinese are physically in control, but beyond that, the mind and the spirit is, it just can't be touched. I am so <laughs> glad. And I see your your uh, your enthusiasm and your hope it's really it's really uplifting to me uh, you know you're one of those people who integrates different dimensions sort of seamlessly in your life the the first is the socio-cultural commons you live in those commons you function yes. artistically socially uh, and yet at the same time, you're a political animal. And then you also are a spiritual person, perhaps not putting all of your energy into formal practice or the organized element of, right. of Tibetan Buddhism, but living your spirituality and struggling for social change and spiritual change in daily life. That's uh, true. And these I'm were... Trying. <laughs> well, yeah, you've been trying for uh, 50 years, trying very, very well. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out, that I felt very connected to the ways in which you kind of have been integrating these elements for so long. I don't know if you care to comment on that or not. You don't have to. Well, uh, you know, I guess you could say I feel very strongly I'm a, a citizen of the world. I'm a human being first. And I didn't feel this way as when I was a child, obviously. 
But circumstances of our lives as Tibetans, Tibetan refugees, and being involved in the struggle for, shall we say, justice and human rights for the Tibetan people, mm -hmm. uh, has forced us to look at the larger world also. And in the process, yes, picking up new languages and understanding new cultures and other ways of living and surviving, uh, we've become, I guess, more global in that sense. And uh, so many of, many of my colleagues or people of my generation feel very strongly that we are Tibetans, but at the same time, we've now evolved into something more than just a Tibetan, hopefully a good citizen. <laughs> and in the process, yes, I think we've picked up a lot of uh, uh, good things from many cultures, you know, uh, having lived in India, picked up a lot of Indian spiritual and Indian influences, then having to live with the, in the Western world and the Western reality, also picked up many uh, positive and good things from the West. And so we are trying to keep Buddhist ideals, uh, Indian influences, Western influences, all the best parts as much as we can together and in our lives. Sometimes it's a struggle, but usually there should be no conflict. <laughs> I was reminded of an interview you did uh, after the uh, the movie Seven Years in Tibet came out, uh, for which you were an ad the advisor. Uh, I put that in the introduction that I that will be attached to the podcast. But but there was a piece from that I wanted to bring up. Uh, and even back then, you said that the movie was a story not just about human rights, the environment, cultural preservation, religious practices, or language, but all of these. Mm -hmm. And you said it's a story about a country facing extinction at a juncture point in history when the traditional ways of life spiritual ways of life are clashing with the modern world. I was particularly struck by the next line, that you believe that that story is not complete yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo I love that. It raises issues that confront all of us, how and why we should preserve different peoples, different languages, different cultures and traditions in the whole world today. So Tibet becomes a broader symbolic story for all of us. That's true. I think it still remains that, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think since uh, we did that interview, uh, something very interesting about Tibetans were also found out. You, you read about the Denisovians, the, uh, not uh, another human race, possibly, like the Neanderthals, uh -huh. pre-modern pre humans, yes. who lived somewhere in the Central Asia and they became... In extinct, but a good part of Denisovian DNA exists among Tibetans, more among Tibetans than many, maybe, maybe any other group. And uh, that DNA has given the Tibetans the special adaptability to high altitude. Uh, so I want to put in a special uh, characteristic for the Tibetans, a new, a newfound 
<laughs> scientifically proven special quality of the Tibetans. <laughs> but but you're saying it, it it contributes to a kind of inner resilience or hardiness. It does. That, you know, that very could, physical level. It could yes. be physiological, yeah. Y yes, it is. So Tibetans can adapt to high altitudes and uh, somehow the, the blood is able to absorb more oxygen even when there's less oxygen at high altitudes. And so, in order to continue to exist as a people, <laughs> the, yes. uh, the identity and the sense of uh, spiritual identity has become resilient too. Yes, yeah. it adds to that for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just to switch gears briefly, um, I read that you um, interviewed uh, the professor of Buddhist studies, Donald Lopez, uh, yeah. about the role of saints in Buddhist traditions. And he had come out with a book called Seeing the Sacred in Samsara. Samsara is a right. world of pain, coming and going, birth and death, up and down, success and failure. An integrated guide to 84 Mahasiddhas. So right. Lopez presented some full-color paintings. Yes. And... Um, you discussed your remarkable family history and the origins of the paintings. Can you say That's something right. about, about your family sure. history and what, how that connects up with these paintings and the, the myths of these archetypes? Sure. Well, first of all, have you seen that book? I have not. Okay. Then I will be happy to try and get a copy to you. Oh. So you. Uh, the story behind this is... Uh, uh, my grandfather uh, served in the Tibetan government. This is in the 19, 1920s. Yes. And uh, he was a, a government officer. And at those times, the government officer was also occasionally uh, a military officer. Uh -huh. You know, if there was a conflict, you would have to put on your military uniform. And anyway, he served uh, in the 1920s and uh, it was a time when uh, there were remnants of Chinese uh, uh, soldiers in Tibet, especially in eastern parts of Tibet, and uh, Tibetans were able to push them out, out. And my grandfather was involved in one or two of these uh, campaigns. So because of that, he was in eastern Tibet, and then when the conflicts were over, he, he served in, uh, shall we say, like governmental positions as the governor of Eastern Tibet. So he was in a part of Tibet called Delge, which is famous for its monasteries, libraries, and also a lot of artwork. So he managed to get a well-known artist from that area to do a set of paintings called the 84 Mahasiddhas. Mm -hmm. This is a a text of what we loosely can say are 84 saintly figures of Buddhism. And it's based on an Indian Buddhist text. And it also, in, in the later version, includes a few uh, a Tibetan figures in it. And, uh, it's, it's, and it's meant to be stories of individuals from all walks of life, from kings to beggars to thieves to, and in India, those are low-ranking butchers. And uh, each story is about how 
they became enlightened or they became, you know, fully aware. So it's, I think they're meant to be stories of lives that uh, will inspire and move you on to, uh, towards enlightenment. So anyway, these uh, uh, stories are, uh, were used in Buddhist studies and uh, often paintings were done of them. And since there's so many, 84 of them, usually in a big painting, they may put in 10 or 12 in each of them because there's so many to do. For some reason, my grandfather asked for individual portraits. So, so the artists did them, and they're only about six by five, you know. And he did them, uh, when 80, 84 of them plus a Buddha image. So they're 85 paintings. And uh, they were never properly mounted, you know. You know how they're mounted with a brocade, and mm -hmm. it can be quite. Uh, it would be much bigger. So my grandfather just had them on canvas and it, and it just adds up to being a, like a stack of paintings, no more than a thick hardcover book. Mm -hmm. And his thought was that he would bring them home when he came back to Lhasa and he wanted to build a small, what you might term, a chapel in his backyard, a small chapel, and he was going to uh, have it mounted in the chapel. Mm. So he came and when he returned, uh, unfortunately, he didn't live too long. And so he never got to do the chapel. And then because it was so small, my father carried it around wherever he could. And so that's how it finally managed to come out with him when he came to India. And then it went wherever we went in India, many places. Somehow it never got lost. And then at some stage, it came into my sort of possession. I was to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And so I had it with me in India. And then when I first came to New York and California and back and forth, all of it's been with me. And uh, we were, I was also wondering how best to preserve it and also to, in a sense, share it with my family members and also share the beauty of the paintings with everyone. Mm -hmm. And no good idea came up for a long time. And sometime, maybe a few, more than a few years ago, uh, when I was at Stanford, uh, Professor Don Lopez came to lecture a few times. You know, Professor Don Lopez is one of the most renowned Tibetan Buddhist scholars mm -hmm. in America. And he's at the University of Michigan. And I've known him for some time before. So at some point, it just occurred to me, since I know him and I've run into him so many times, I said, I'd like to show you these paintings. And I wonder if you want to, you can do a text or something about them because I, I'm not qualified to do that. So I ended up showing these to him. And he said he would be happy to do that. And so as you when you get the book, you'll see he did a wonderful, uh, you know, accompanying text to these paintings, the background to the whole idea of the eighty-four masters, uh, its origins and how it changed, and then he translated brief, brief biographies of each of the eighty-four, mm. and so we have the paintings reproduced in the original size, and it's a beautiful little art book. And uh, so I'll be happy to 
you know, um, send a copy to you. What a treasure! <laughs> something you've been carrying so, around, sort of carrying. So now, your... yeah. So now it's something I can share with all my family, friends, and you know, my grandfather's descendants. There are quite a few in Tibet and now in India and Canada, Switzerland and America. So at least they won't have the original, but they'll have a good, beautiful cover, uh, color pictures of these paintings. So, and then of course, for friends and others who are interested. Yes. So there you again are disseminating not just information, but beauty and myth and heritage of uh, Tibetan Buddhism disseminating to wider and wider off, uh, audiences so that they can resonate with them and they can have, right. have an impact on their lives and their hearts. That's a wonderful story. I really, really appreciate that. There's, there's one more story I'd love for you to unpack for us. Um, and it's uh, also about giving voice to the Tibetan experience. Um, and it concerns a Tibetan woman who's a poet named mm -hmm. Sering Use. Yes. I, I may not be pronouncing it correct. Urser, Urser. Urser. And um, that's her book. <laughs> I have it right here in front of me. I didn't know you were going to talk about her. <laughs> Listeners, uh, uh, Tenzin's showing me a book, uh, Tibet on Fire. Um, that's right. <laughs> Tibet on fire, and our podcast is Lotus in the Midst of the Fire, which is, Tibet is that lotus too. Um, I, I was so moved by the story of her poetry and what she was wanting to represent and honor and disseminate to the world in an artistic form. Could, could you tell us more about it? Well, uh, she's a very unusual woman. Um, she lives in Beijing mm -hmm. and she writes about what's happening in Tibet, all the problems and issues and all the frustrations and pains of the Tibetans without any hesitation. And she's fairly well known in Tibet and in, in Chinese circles because she writes mainly in Chinese. I believe her Chinese is very good too. So she's a poet and a writer. And for some reason, Chinese authorities have not been brave enough to stop her or contain her. And she's written many uh, uh, very good pieces on uh, what's happening in Tibet. And she is educating a lot of the Chinese leadership the frustrations of the Tibetan people. And this book, which I just happened to have right here in front of me. Tibet on Fire. Uh, Tibet on Fire. And she wrote this just a few years ago. It's about the self-immolations in Tibet. Mm. So she just focused purely on that and how Tibetans are trying to uh, talk of their pains and how they're trying to change the conversation in China. And uh, she's, she's very remarkable. Is there, um, is there a poem uh, that, 
that you uh, happen to know of that you might uh, uh, maybe on the short side that that you might well whatever length that, that you might yeah, no read. i don't have any poems no. here okay. this uh, i have another book of us somewhere with poems but this is just about uh, uh, the self emulations let's see yeah. I remember you and I were talking about that when there were a spate of them, you know, a number of years ago, and how full of sorrow, uh, you know, uh, people are at the immolations, and yet at the same time, in, in out of desperation, they are themselves an expression. They are a communication. Yes. They are, I dare not, quite call it, but they are a kind of spiritual practice um, and a sharing of, uh, of something. Uh, do you want to say a few words about it or not? Yes. Well, it's a very uh, difficult subject and uh, uh, most Tibetans, I think, understand and feel what these self-immolators are saying and doing. They know, understand it. Uh, many others who are outside the Tibetan experience don't quite know how to uh, comment on it. Some people think it's too extreme. Some people think it's uh, too violent. Some people think it's not the right way to express oneself. And uh, even many Tibetan lamas are not sure whether to uh, uh, say it's the right thing to do or not. Mm -hmm. Many have simply uh, tried to remain neutral. A few lamas have said they call on Tibetan self-immolators or potential self-immolators not to do this because your life is more precious than that. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing that does come up every now and then is, you know, most Tibetans are also influenced by the Buddhist thought that intention is the most important thing in any action you carry out. Mm -hmm. So the intention of these people have, have stated very clearly, their intention in doing self-immolations is to draw attention to the fact that the Tibetan people are suffering, not just him or herself, all Tibetans are suffering, and Tibetans have a great yearning for His Holiness the Dalai Lama to come back. So it's the suffering that needs to be acknowledged, that needs to be understood, and uh, uh, the hope that the Dalai Lama can come back soon is part of the, of the call. So they are saying, I'm doing this so that the suffering of all other Tibetans will, be, will come to an end hopefully. So from that point of view, their intention is uh, for the benefit of others. Mm. And they are taking a very high risk kind of action. Sacrifice. And uh, when we talked, I think the count of the Tibetans who had done self-immolation were in the 120 or 130, yeah. somewhere around that time. Now it's over 150. Mm 
there's a feeling of gravity and power to this discussion, sorrow. Uh, for me, a little bit of despair, but not too much, because as you say, this self-sacrificial act uh, is intended to benefit all beings and the Tibetan people and uh, to bring back His Holiness to Tibet and deepen their spiritual practice. So uh, I think on that point, uh, on a point of both pathos and hope and putting it together with how you started the interview, which was so upbeat and hopeful about this new sense of identity among the Tibetan people, maybe we can close by holding these 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys in, in the same hands. That's right. Thank you, that's right. I'm very grateful for your time, Tenzin, and it, it is a great pleasure to see you again, albeit virtually. I send you all my best wishes. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And uh, if the interview is over, I just want to say, in your next email, please send me a mailing address. I definitely will send you the book because I, I managed to get a few extra copies. I would love a copy, and especially <laughs> one, one coming from you directly. Thank you. Sure. Bye-bye, okay. Tenzin. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That's our show for today. The Lotus and the Fire is produced by Deep Streams Zen Institute. The music is by Lou Richmond. Greg Wirth edited the audio. I'm Joseph Bobro. To learn more about Deep Streams, visit our website, deepstreams.org, and subscribe to the show so you can listen to new episodes as soon as they drop. Go to anchor.fm slash joseph-bobro to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. To provide feedback about the show, contact us at bobro at deepstreams.org. And please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Thanks. Until next time, 